Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Austin Ye. Austin is a 25-year-old real estate investor. Austin's journey began 29 months ago when he first picked up the book Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Since then, Austin has accumulated over 35 rental units in addition to completing over 10 wholesale deals. Moreover, Austin has founded and operates the Rise Network community. Currently with over 3,200 members, this network continues to inspire and help the everyday investor break into the world of real estate investing. He is also a co-founder of the Rise Real Estate Networking Podcast, which highlights different investors' journeys and strategies as they navigate through the real estate world to achieve financial independence. Austin has most recently retired from his full-time job at a large financial institution at the age of 25 to pursue real estate investing and wholesaling full-time. Moreover, he has recently reaped the fruits of his labor by selling his first property and redeploying the profits to purchase his first ever primary residence without any financial assistance from his parents. In my interview with Austin, we discuss scaling your rental property portfolio, lessons learned as a real estate investor during COVID-19, and how the everyday person can enjoy similar real estate investing success. Without further ado, here's my interview with Austin Ye. Hi Austin, how are you doing today? Not too bad, Sean. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty good, thanks. It's great to have you on the podcast. I first came across your story in Toronto Life. You're 25 years old, live with your parents, and own 20 rental properties. Wow, I didn't even own my first property until I was 27 years old. But this didn't happen overnight. Let's start from the beginning. When I read your story, I definitely knew that I wanted to have you on the podcast. Thanks in advance for being on the show. No, thank you so much for having me on, man. It's an honor. Similar to me, you didn't have the typical Canadian upbringing. Myself, my parents weren't wealthy by any means. They provided a decent life for me, but uh, we certainly didn't live in a mansion. Didn't get a brand new bike. The nicest bike I got was pretty much out of the out of the garbage on garbage days. Yeah, I definitely didn't have the typical Canadian upbringing either. Can you tell us what it was like growing up and how did this help you shape your views about money later in life? Yeah, honestly, like I wouldn't say I had the roughest childhood or anything like that. So I guess I'll, I'll uh, backtrack. Um, my parents, they were born and raised in India. My dad, he dropped out of school in grade six to help support his family. So poverty stricken, the typical, the typical immigrant story. And they moved down to Canada and for a better life. So they've actually met in Canada. 
uh, weirdly enough, but they're both born in India and we're both, they're, they're both Chinese. <laughs> Quite odd there. But yeah, they immigrated down to Canada, worked a ton of blue lo- labor jobs, right? Like 90 hour work weeks, making minimum wage to make ends meet. And then eventually they had my sister and I, and obviously that the grind and work even harder. We didn't get the nicest thing, but one thing that has resonated with me a lot is, is that my parents were always very frugal in nature because again, we didn't come from much. They weren't high income earners by any means. And even to this day, they're still working in warehouses as like laborers. Our income hasn't changed significantly. However, we're still able to live a great lifestyle. And that's just because like I valued experiences and time spent with family and relationships much more than I did money. So I was very frugal in nature growing up because my parents would go coupon shopping. They would search for the best deals. They would literally drive 15 minutes to get gas in a place that's cheaper than one that's right beside our house. So all of those small tips to save money. And that kind of got ingrained on me. However, one thing is, is that although it is nice to spend time with family relationships and value, all of those things, when you're in school, you see some kids have nice things, right? And there's a bit of jealousy that comes with it. And I was never the kid that had too much nice things. So I made an admission that I wanted to earn a high income when I'm working full-time because I was always a bright, studious kid, but it's like, okay, I'm going to be a doctor or dentist. And when I took my first biology class in grade 11, I hated it, but I was doing well in business courses. So I was like, you know what? I am just going to go ahead and study business because it seems like a pretty lucrative field. If I get into investment banking or consulting, there's pretty good money to be made there. But as I was progressing through university where I got a decent scholarship in as well, and in different internships, I realized that I was not passionate in any of these things that I was doing. And a lot of the time, the money that I was making from these jobs, I was spending it, right? So I actually didn't have my first debit or credit card until university. My parents saved all of the money I had in a bank account, never had access to it. All of my part-time jobs throughout high school, all of my Chinese new year money, birthday money, all saved up. So obviously when I got a credit and debit card and I was making money and I never really spent money before, like I kind of, kind of snapped. I spent much more than I should have, but sooner or later when I graduated and got my first full-time job at RBC, I realized, you know, what? like everything I'm doing in life, I feel like I am doing what other people are telling me. I'm very studious. I got a good scholarship. I worked all of these great internships, but still for whatever reason, I don't feel satisfied. And that was just because I was chasing money. I was chasing prestige. I wasn't chasing passions. And when that came into realization, I was like, you know what? Like I need to make a significant change in my life, right? Like I was just as happy when I was a frugal person growing up. And I think what changed it was, is that lack of self-confidence. You get a bit jealous of seeing what other people wear, what other people are spending money on, but I was happy, right? Like, like, and, and that's when I realized, you know what? Money isn't everything. Prestige isn't everything. I'm just going to go back to being a frugal person, not giving into that lifestyle inflation and try to build up an investment portfolio to help me get financial freedom. But that is basically the journey of, I guess, me growing up, getting into the, getting into the real estate world and how I started investing in real estate. Great. Thanks so much for sharing your inspiring story. And yeah, I just wanted to, I, when reading the Toronto Life article, you wrote that a book, there was a book that you read that really influenced your views on money as, as well as your life in general. So could you talk about that book and, and what that taught you? Yeah, it's funny. So this book is actually highly recommended by a lot of real estate investors. It's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Now, Robert Kiyosaki is a controversial figure. Honestly, to be frank, I'm not a big fan of him. However, that particular book, I have to attribute a lot of my success to that book because what that book taught me is is how wealthy or um, rich people think versus 
your average everyday person, right? And it was just really a mindset shift. So one of the things that he mentioned in this book is that rich people don't ask, don't say, I can't afford that. They say, what can I do today to be able to afford that later? So asking yourself these small questions, shift your mindset and to shift your way of thinking. And one of the key concepts I got from that book is understanding the difference between assets and liabilities. See, I'm a finance major and I've also worked in audit and accounting as well. So I understand what asset and liabilities are, but Robert Kiyosaki's definition is much different. So he says that asset is anything that puts money into your pocket every single month. And a liability is anything that takes money out of your pocket every single month. And that's not the true definition from an accounting perspective, but that's a, that's a rich man slash wealthy man's definition of an asset and liability. And what he said is, is that average people earn their income through their job. Then they take that income and they buy liabilities, like a new car, they buy fancy clothes, they go dine at fancy restaurants. Whereas rich people, they actually get their income from not only a job, but they get it from their assets. Their assets are generating them income. So they take this income and they buy more assets with it. They don't buy liabilities. They buy more assets, which generates even more income. They take that bigger base of income and reinvest that into even more assets. And they keep on doing that until their asset base grows so much that it's generating enough income for them to live off of. So that was the fundamental principle where I realized, you know what? Real estate investing is that asset class, right? Like I am not only am I getting equity pay down, but I'm getting rental income from these assets. So if I'm able to scale my portfolio enough, I theoretically would be able to replace my entire full-time job income. And that's kind of the goal for me within the next couple of years now. And I guess a light bulb went off in, in your mind when you read that book there, because real estate ticks all the boxes. Thanks for explaining that. And that actually leads perfectly into my next questions. Austin, tell me about your experience buying your first properties and what lessons did you learn from buying your first property as well? Yeah. So after reading Rich Dad Poor Dad, I was like, all right, I'm ready to take action. And that book didn't teach me anything technical about real estate whatsoever. It was just a mindset shift, but it was enough for me to get started. So I had about $40,000 Canadian saved up upon graduation and after paying down all my debts. And that's just because I've been very frugal growing up. I worked 18 months of internship. I want to say I got a scholarship in university and in grade nine to 12, I worked 40 hour work weeks every summer and all of that money was saved. So I had quite a bit of savings left over and I couldn't afford anything in Toronto. Obviously, like even a parking space, it was like $80,000. So <laughs> there's no way. So I ended up trying to find other areas that I could afford. And I ran into the forgotten city of Windsor, four hours away from Toronto and housing there was very cheap at the time. It's still relatively affordable now, but I ended up purchasing a single family home for $130,000. Now that Wow, that's pretty affordable. <laughs> oh, I was very, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, super affordable. So at that point, I didn't know anything about real estate investing. So I screwed up in terms of working with the wrong realtor. So what I like to say is, is that the right realtor for you is a realtor that has investment properties themselves because their job is to sell investment properties. So they better be buying investment properties as well. If someone tells me to invest in Tesla, you better have put your money in Tesla or I'm not going to do it. And it's the same thing with real estate investing. If a realtor is telling me to buy a property, they should have already have a couple of investment properties themselves. Put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. That's exactly what it is. Put your money where your mouth is because everyone wants to give recommendations, but ain't nobody want to like put the money up. I didn't do that due diligence. So I worked with a random realtor with zero investment properties. 
they called me down to Windsor and I went down to Windsor with my dad. And then we started looking at all of these properties and I ended up buying the cheapest one, which was 130 grand because I felt <laughs> obligated to buy something. She was using like sales pressure tactics on me. And for whatever reason, I felt bad. Let me just buy something. And then I bought something and I thought the renovations were going to be $10,000. I don't know where I got that number from. I pulled it out my butt. But after doing some more research before closing the property, I went down to view it a second time. And I'm like, holy crap, this property definitely costs more than $10,000 in renovation. It was actually double the budget that I, that I initially projected for. I hired a contractor, didn't really do much research on that contractor as well. Didn't really interview them. I just wanted to get this work started as soon as possible. That's mistake number two. I didn't get references. I didn't ask other investors for referrals. I was trying to do everything myself and alone. So the issue with that is that I'm susceptible to all of these mistakes because you don't know what you don't know. And this contractor overcharged me for renovations and continuously asked for more money or they'd walk away from the job. They, their timeline has doubled or some days they didn't even show up. So it was a complete nightmare of a first experience. All of that could have hundred percent been avoided if I just networked with other people or read the right books or watched the right YouTube videos, which I didn't. However, it was definitely a learning lesson. The biggest issue was, is that again, I had $40,000 saved. That was not enough to supply this entire renovation project since it doubled. So I had to go ask my girlfriend and my mom and dad for some money to help fund the rest of it. Cause my back was against the wall and renovations were doubling and I couldn't afford it. It was either that I'm screwed or I got to ask people for money. My girlfriend just came out of university with a ton of debt. My mom and my dad, they're both blue collar laborers. So they don't have a lot of money saved up. My dad doesn't even have a hundred thousand saved up and he's like 65. That's like not good at all. Right. So for me to ask them money, it, it was not easy thing to do, but they loaned me the money, the deal. Uh, I, after the renovations, I purchased it for one thirty. all in, I was about one fifty five K in total and the property appraised for 178 K. So I was able to refinance money out of that property and purchase another one. But that was my experience from my first property. Tons of lessons learned from it. Definitely should have done more due diligence. Definitely should have asked other investors for references as well along that journey. And it, it's great that you use that as a learning ex experience and it didn't scare you away from investing in real estate. I mean, it would be perfect. It would be great if your first investment property went perfect, but fortunately they don't teach us financial literacy in, in school. But I'm glad to hear that you were able to learn a lesson from that and go on to buy many more properties. Before we get into the other properties that you own, I just wanted to ask you, what advice do you have for people discouraged by the, the high cost of real estate in big cities like Toronto and Vancouver? Like certainly back then you could buy a property in a single family detached home in Windsor for under $150,000, which you couldn't <laughs> yeah. even, you couldn't even buy like a micro condo in Toronto for, for that much. What positive words of wisdom could you give to somebody in, in a city like Toronto and Vancouver who see these prices and just seems like un, unattainable for them, but they would still like to re invest in real estate? Yeah. So I would definitely suggest looking at smaller cost cities, more affordable cities. So I don't even like to invest in Toronto and or major uh, metropolitan cities. That being said, I do have a property in Toronto. However, it's not the place that I would ever want to invest in. And the reason being is because these cities are cash flow negative. So your rental income is not even covering all of the expenses of these properties. So 
First off, I, I want to say that don't think that you just need to invest in these major big cities because the only thing that's going to make you money in these big cities is appreciation. And if appreciation is never guaranteed. It's dependent on market supply and demand, right? So really like it's out of your control. I like to have control of real estate and I know that I can control assets which are generating me cash flow. I can determine what rent that I want to charge. I can try to minimize expenses by charging the tenant utilities or putting more efficient furnaces in there. Like I have control of cash flowing properties because I can control revenue and expenses. So I would suggest buying in these smaller cities where acquisition prices are cheaper, rent prices are solid and they're good. This low vacancy rate. So you're still able to choose cream of the crop tenants, but you're able to expand your portfolio here as well, just because it's an easy entry point. And of course it's cash flow positive. Being cash flow positive is very important because in times like a recession, imagine your property price is dropping and you're funneling in $1,000 every month because you're cash flow negative. That hurts because you're losing both ways. At least with being cash flow positive, what happens is that if property prices are dropping, it doesn't matter because my income that I'm getting from this rental property is the exact same. So I can hold through the downturns. I can hold through the upturns. I can hold through the entire cycles of real estate because my revenue or my net cash flow doesn't change. So I definitely encourage looking at other cities around you where property prices are much more affordable. And if there's nothing around you, invest in another province, right? Like I think too many people are afraid to invest long distance. I definitely was at the beginning, but you got to take that leap of faith. You got to rely and build on it. You got to build a power team. Like the CEO of Microsoft, do you think he's coming down to Canada to take a look at the Canadian head office? No, like he, he has managers, he has team members there operating the business. And that's like real estate, right? Like if you have property managers, contractors, other investors in that local area who are looking out for your best interest, you have no need to be there. Operate it like a business. That's my advice. Don't be afraid about distance and look for more affordable cities that cash flow. Very well said. I'm sure this is the question that the listeners are dying to know the answer to. How the heck did you go from one property in the fall of 2018 to 20 properties today? I mean, that's that's not a lot of time. I talked about your experience with your first property. So maybe you could walk us through properties two all the way to 20. I mean, you don't have to tell the story of every single property because we'd be here all day. But yeah, yeah. just be curious how you can go from one property to 20 in like two and a half years. That's pretty remarkable. Cool. Yeah, no. So I will definitely focus on the first three or four because those are the most important foundational points. And then I'll skim over the rest because it's kind of the, more of the same. So the first one, as I said, funded it myself borrowed some money from my girlfriend and my parents, refinanced that property and paid them back. And I had some money left over. Right. And then fortunately that tenant paid one year's rent up front. So I took that one year's rent up front plus my refinance money out. And I bought a second property with it and I did the same thing. So I renovated that property and then I refinanced it three months later. So now we're six months in, right? So first three months was my first property. Next three months was my second property. And I refinanced that property, pulled out almost every dollar I invested in it, except for like 1,500 bucks or something like that. So almost a full refinance of all the money I put in there. And it's still cash flow positive. Then I bought my third property, which is a duplex. And that duplex, same thing, renovated it and refinanced it. So now we're about nine months in. And this is where things really take off. So the first, I want to say nine months, it was like a steady growth pace. Like I, re I renovate, refinance onto the next one, onto the next one. So I got three that way. And then really, this is when my growth, I guess, started to really blow up is, is I started 
organizing a meetup down in Toronto. I found that there wasn't any affordable meetup in Toronto or at least meetups targeted to millennials for real estate investing. So I decided to just put one together and people started to come out and I was documenting my journey on social media. I had that meetup. I was giving free advice. I was writing articles. I was doing everything I can to just to spread knowledge out about real estate investing. And what that eventually did was it created me as a person with credibility and an expertise in real estate investing. Someone decided to reach out to me and say, Austin, I have a bunch of money, borrowing capacity. Let's partner up. I want you to do all of the active work. I want to learn from you and I'll fund all the money. I was like, oh man, this is pretty awesome. So I went ahead with that. And then that's called the joint ventureship. And I ended up pulling out almost all of his money that he invested in that property. Then that person bought a couple of more properties with me and even more people started reaching out to me. They're just like, oh, Austin is doing these refinances, pulling money out, scaling his portfolio. He knows what he's doing. He's hustling. I see all of the work he's putting in on social media, how much effort he is he's putting out to teach other people. And people just started to know, like, and trust me for my social media image. So I had people reach out to me. So like, Austin, we have a ton of money. Take it, invest for us. We'll split the profits 50-50. And I kept on doing that, right? And with a lot of my partners, we're just refinancing these properties after you're renovating it. And then we're just deploying it into more assets. So the first three properties were slow, were slow process. Just three properties in the first nine months. I wouldn't call that slow, but it was a sustainable pace. But then after that, my portfolio really blew up when I started joining venturing with other people. And that was just by building my branding, my credibility and all of that up. So yeah, like there is not really a secret to it. I think the article really did skim over how important of a part partnerships has played to my growth, but really most of my property are co-owned with someone else. Great. Thanks so much for sharing your story. And the article talked about your renovate, refinance, rent and repeat strategies. I guess that's basically what you were talking about. But could you just quickly touch on that one more time and how important that's been to your growth strategy? Because having to save up the down payment for each property, that would definitely take a long time to get to 20 properties. So definitely refinancing and pulling out that equity and renovating it, I would imagine plays an important role because that helps you increase the value and have more equity to pull out. So yeah, just be interested for you to explain that system that you came up with. Yes, absolutely. So it's actually a pretty neat strategy. I, I, that's pretty popular within the real estate community. I would say majority of people don't know it because most people just like, as you were saying, they buy properties in Toronto, Vancouver, wait for it to appreciate and then go from there or save the down payment. But if you're deep into real estate investing and within that network, you learn all of these cool little tricks. And one of the biggest real estate investment strategies, it's called the Burr strategy. It's an acronym. The B stands for buy, the R stands for renovate, the other R stands for rent, other R stands for refinance, and the last R stands for repeat. On a high level, what it is is that the first B is buy. So you buy an asset. Generally, you want to buy it undervalued. How do you buy undervalued properties? You buy properties that need quite a bit of work because most first-time home buyers will not buy properties that need work because they're afraid of it. They don't want to do it. They just want to move in the property and relax, right? I want to buy a property that needs some sort of work. So that's the first B. The R is renovate. So after I buy this property, I want to drive as much value into this property as possible. So for every $1 I spend in renovations, I should be driving more than $1 in value of the property. If I'm driving any less than $1 in value of the property, that means I'm spending more money on renovations. I'm not getting much return in in house value. So I make it a point to strategically renovate the property. So paint, 
flooring, light fixtures, kitchen, bathroom. Those are the main things I like to touch. Adding a bedroom could also significantly increase the value of your property. But I renovate strategically to drive the market value of the property up. So once I buy it and I renovate it, I then rent it out. So I rent this property out because that's what all rental properties are meant to do, to rent it out, provide someone with safe living, collect your cash flow equity pay down, and that's going to help fund your retirement, right? And after that, I refinance it. I bought it. I renovated it. I rented it out. Now I go to the bank and say, Hey, I bought this property three months ago. This is how it looked like before. This is how much money I spent on renovations. These are all of the things I did. What is this property worth now? So let's say I bought a property for a hundred thousand. I spent 25,000 in renovation. The bank might say, Hey, Austin, that property is worth $200,000 now right? Because you bought it up to market standard. And this is what other properties are selling for around the area in similar condition. So what I do is I'm like, okay, Mr. or Mrs. Bank, refinance this property for me. I want a new mortgage on this property, 80% loan to value. And then they refinance the property. I take that money, pay off my old mortgage, and I have leftover money. Right now, that means that all of the money I put into the property, I was able to pull the majority of it, if not all of that money back out, and I can reinvest that into another asset. The main thing is that every asset that I'm buying, it's still cash flow positive even after refinancing the property. But by doing this strategy again, again, and again, you're taking advantage of the velocity of money. So you're not having to save for your down payment for every single property. You're buying these properties, adding value to it, then refinancing it. So you get your down payment money and renovation money back out of that property. And you repeat that process again and again and again until you get tapped out by mortgages. Great. And that's a perfect point that you touched on. When you hit that five rental property number, it can be a bit challenging to grow your portfolio. So maybe you can talk about the importance of working with like a lender or mortgage broker, somebody that can help you grow your portfolio. Because if if you don't structure it properly, you can kind of hit a glass ceiling at the five rental property number. Yes, very important point. So when I was doing this by myself, not working with a mortgage broker, I was just going through RBC because I work at RBC full-time. And then the mortgage specialist told me I'm tapped out at three properties. What is there to do now? (laughs) And I decided to contact a mortgage broker referred over to me by one of my buddies. And I was still able to qualify. It was just like each lender has the different qualification standards and criteria. And it's super important to work with the mortgage broker because they have access to numerous lenders, not only a lender banks, but credit unions and, and different financial institutions as well. Just because you can't qualify at TD doesn't mean you can't qualify at Scotiabank. One of the important things for me is, is that there's something that is, it's not really an official term, but it's a term that's kind of coined within the real estate community called the zero impact mortgages. It's basically if your rental income is double your mortgage payment. So my mortgage payment is 500 a month, but my rents are $1,000 every single month. General rule of thumb with Scotiabank, not with any other bank that I'm familiar with, but with Scotiabank, if your rental income has doubled your mortgage payment, Scotiabank is going to qualify you for another mortgage. And Scotiabank actually goes up to 10 mortgages. But for a lot of people, they own their primary residence first. So they can't really take advantage of this. I didn't have any primary residence. I just purchased a bunch of rental properties. So yeah, definitely important to work with a mortgage expert or mortgage broker who really knows the space. My understanding is you're located in the GTA. How are you able to look after 18 properties in Windsor when you still live in, in Toronto? I mean, Windsor's not like Hamilton, like a half hour away, like Windsor's four hours away. So briefly touched on the property manager earlier, but maybe you could just explain for the listeners who don't know what a property manager is and how often you have to go down there. Like, is it really realistic or possible to own rental properties down there if you don't have a vehicle? Maybe you can just talk about how the property manager really helps you with all of that. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Before I get into that, I want to point out that a lot of people invest in real estate to get financial freedom, to be able to retire from the full-time grind, peace of mind financially, and be able to travel the world or do their own thing. Realistically, you're never going to be able to get financial freedom and travel the world if you don't hire your property management out because you're always going to needing, you always need to manage the property. So it's very important to pe for people to wrap their head around that with real estate properties, you're not going to be managing it or you shouldn't manage it because it's not worth your time. And if you want to be able to retire and travel the world or do whatever, eventually you're going to have to hire that job out. Very quickly for me, a four hour distance did not matter to me because I already knew my end objective was to travel the world, enjoy my life, have financial freedom. And I was never going to get that if I was managing these properties. So I hired a property manager. So a property manager essentially are people local to that area who take care of the properties. They collect the rents from the tenants. They deal with all of the, the headaches with the tenants. If the tenants call about, oh, there's a, there's, a, there's a plumbing issue or something, or the toilet is flooding, the property manager coordinates a plumber. So you don't get those phone calls, right? Your property manager is dealing with everyone. Think about it like an ex executive ex assistant of a business, how the executive assistant manages and schedules everything and just tells the CEO, oh, like your schedule has this, this, and this. You're only communicating with your EA, your executive assistant. You're not communicating with all of the other people's schedule meetings and stuff. And that's what a property manager is. I'm only communicating with one property manager who manages my entire rental portfolio. Yes, they cost money. And the property management field is notorious for being kind of mediocre and taking care of properties, right? Because they don't get paid the most. But it's important to also hire the right property manager and spend a bit more for property managers that take care of your property and will give special attention to it. But yeah, so for me to be able to look over my 18 properties in Windsor, it's, it's fine. Cause I trust no one like my property manager. I know I gave them the expectations of like, I don't want to be called for every little thing. Like if something needs like a $300 fixed and up, then yeah, give me a call. But if it's a hundred dollar fix, don't, don't bother giving me a call because it needs to get done anyway. So just handle the situation and tell me at the end of the month. So we set all of those expectations up front. So really the management isn't crazy from the property management side. But what I'll tell you is, is that I do go back and forth in Windsor quite a bit still. And and the reason being is because for me personally, I think networking is extremely important for me to build a team of reliable people. I need to have met these people and spoken with them on the phone and have a relationship with them. So really I'm going back and forth in winter to build these relationships. Realistically, if I didn't want to buy any properties today and I was happy with my portfolio and didn't want to grow whatsoever. Yeah. I could get away with never having to attend Windsor again and just let the property manager deal with everything, but I'm still in the growth stages. I still want to build relationships. So I'm going back and forth every now and then, but this is with the understanding again, at any time, if it's like Austin, I don't want to do this anymore. I quit whatever. Like I just want to chill and collect my rent. I could just let the property manager do their thing and be on cruise control. But yeah, it's super important to hire a property manager. Some people want to manage everything themselves. Sure. I mean, that's cool. But if you're trying to scale to like 10, 11, 12, 13 properties, good luck with managing everything yourself. It's not worth your time. No, I agree completely. Very well said. And I just wanted to ask you, certainly COVID-19 isn't uh, something a lot of people expected to be as disruptive as, as it was to everyday life in, in 2020. Like 2020 definitely isn't the year that I had imagined it to be. And I'm sure that's the case with everyone else. So what lessons did you learn as a real estate investor during COVID-19? Like I'm sure you never expected something like this to ever, ever happen. So I heard that in the Toronto Life article, you mentioned that you wish you hadn't have grew your portfolio so much. Do you run into issues with tenants paying the rent? Yes. Yeah, so when COVID first hit, I think it's safe to say that everyone in every business 
not like even including real estate, we're just scared because we didn't know what was going to happen. My biggest fear is, is that what happened if all of these tenants don't pay rent, I am going to be in a tough situation because how am I going to flow all of these costs? So immediately uh, that was the biggest worry. It's like, okay, I scaled way too quickly, way too aggressively. And I didn't have the time to create systems or try to mitigate the risk whatsoever. As these blind spots came up, I realized that, you know what, COVID didn't happen. At a certain point, these blind spots would have came up eventually, right? Like as I continue to grow, COVID just amplified it and put it right in my face and told me like, Austin, you have to deal with all of these things. Like you didn't prepare for any of these things. So I take COVID as a learning lesson. One of the biggest things again was just not having enough contingencies and things like that in place. So one thing is, is that I'd never allocated for bad debt expense before in my cash flow. Right. I definitely should start doing that. Something that I'm planning to do going forward is to allocate bad debt expense so that with the rental income that I receive every month, maybe allocate three to 5% of that as an expense, even though it's not really money coming out of, po- out of my pocket, but allocate that as an expense so that if this property ever goes vacant or someone doesn't pay, I at least recognize that that was an expense that was going to happen. And I saved that money on the side. Another thing is, is that I was spending some of my cash flow money, not all of it, but I should really just be saving all of my cash flow money until it builds a very big nest egg. So that's another thing. Now I'm not even touching any of my cash flow, all of my rental income I get, save it in the bank and let that build up to at least 10 grand each property. And once it builds up to 10 grand each property, then I could start spending a little of it, but I want to make sure I have a safe nest egg in each property in case this does happen again. Right? And the big thing I realized is that I was relying on my property manager to deal with everything. But one of the pitfalls of a property manager is, is they're not going to have as much sympathy as the homeowner. They're managing a hundred tenants. How are you going to show sympathy to all hundred tenants? For me, what I decided to do immediately when COVID struck is I reached out to all of the tenants and I let them know, Hey, look, I know we're not in the most uh, ideal situation right now. If you're going through any financial difficulties, please let me know in advance. We'll work out a payment plan. Well, if we need to discount rent, we'll discount rent. We're going to work something out so we can all get through this together. Right. But if you don't reach out to me, it's safe for me to assume that it's going to be business as usual. You're still going to be paying full rent, right? And this just sets the expectation that, look, like I'm here for you, but you need to be here for me. You need to let me know well in advance so I can work with you. But if you just don't let me know and I don't get rent payment, yeah, we're going through the standard process of filing a non-rent payment form, going to the LTB and dealing with all of that. That is going to still happen, but we can avoid all of that if we're just helping each other out. We're just both proactive with each other. So that's another thing that I realized is that it's important with things like this, where, where tenants are in financial trouble for me personally to reach out to them because I am the only person that can work out a payment plan or a win-win situation. Your property manager won't go through all of that effort. Those are a couple of things that I learned during COVID-19. I wouldn't say it has impacted my business too much now, just because real estate has went through the mother of all recoveries in any industry in Canada. So everything is pretty much recovered and even surpassed historical levels. That was fortunate that I got through that. But it just really, again, opened up those blind spots I had in my business. It's like, okay, Austin, let's take things a bit slower now and focus on building the foundation of your business before you continue to scale. And that's what I've been working on now, like building the foundation before continuing to just buy, buy, buy properties. Oh, definitely some great lessons learned. Thanks so much for sharing that. And in the article, it mentioned that you live with your parents. So I'm just curious, do you still live with your parents today? And if so, how does that influence uh, qualifying for a mortgage? And do you plan to buy your own primary residence one day? Or do you plan to buy like a bigger house together with your parents? Like what are your long-term plans? 
I actually have bought a primary residence. Actually, I'm still living at home with my parents right now. My primary residence has not closed yet. I have been living with my parents for the past 25 years. It's very typical in Asian culture to take care of your parents and spend as much time with them. They don't, they don't, I know, I know some of the comments in Toronto life. They're just like, oh, he's a freeloader. My parents don't consider it freeloading. Neither do I. It's, I guess it's just a cultural thing. But yeah, it does make it super easy to qualify for a mortgage because I'm not paying any rent and I don't have any other than my real estate debt which again, like my income is greater than the debt that I have in real estate. So it's not really a big issue. It did make it so much easier to qualify for a mortgage. Like, as I mentioned earlier, most people have their primary residence first and they try to buy investment properties after it's a bit tough, especially if you own a primary residence in Toronto, because typically a lot of people are tapped out um, as soon as they buy a primary residence in Toronto, right? Their income barely supports that primary residence. And usually you have a co-signer for that primary residence anyway, if you're buying in Toronto or Vancouver, definitely made it much easier to qualify qualify for a mortgage, but I was starting to hit the number of properties where I was not going to qualify for a mortgage anyways with any a lender bank, unless I go to credit unions and I know credit unions are just more lenient in general, being at that point where all of the a lender banks were not going to qualify me for a mortgage anymore. That's when I was like, okay, Austin, it's time for me to buy my primary residence because yeah, this is going to be my last mortgage I'm going to get with an a lender bank. So Screw it. Like now is the right time to buy it. I was just very cognizant to use my primary residence as my last purchase because I wanted to make sure everything was a rental property before then. So I can keep on qualifying. As I mentioned, when you buy your primary residence, it changes the financing situation drastically because it's not income generating. So I did end up buying my primary residence and I will be moving in it in two weeks. So I'm pretty amped for that. And how I actually ended up affording that was, is I sold my first ever investment property. The one that made all of the headaches, I sold it and made close so $100,000 profit took that money and just redeployed that into a primary residence. That's pretty exciting. Definitely have a celebration, uh, crack the champagne bottle open because you've definitely earned it with all, all the real estate and investing that you've done to have an amazing <laughs> primary residence. So congratulations. Thanks so much, man. I, I'm very excited. This is like, I think this is the first time I'm actually reaping the rewards of all of the, the hard work I put in. Yeah, so that's super exciting. And I was just wondering, could you leave some words of inspiration with people in terms of real estate investing? You, you've definitely shared a lot of great lessons on the podcast today. What would you say is your best advice for somebody looking to invest in real estate so that the everyday person can find similar success to you? Yeah, the biggest thing I want to say is, is that the everyday person creates their own limitations. This is going to fall on a lot of deaf ears because it's going to sound stupid, but I've spent over $25,000 in my self-development with other real estate investors that are surrounded myself with multimillionaires. And we all come to the same conclusion. The biggest limiting factor is our mindset. So for example, like if I told myself I could never afford to invest in real estate because I had $40,000, I would have zero properties today. I would have nothing today. Right. But I shifted my mindset. I was like, I can't afford anything in Toronto. What can I afford? And I started looking out in different regions and people always make excuses for themselves. It's their own limiting beliefs that set them behind. It's easy to just focus on the risk instead of focusing on the upside of things. And I'm a positive thinker. I'm an optimistic thinker. I think the biggest way an everyday person can find success in real estate is first surround yourself with people who have what you want. Because if you surround yourself with everyday people, they are going to have the negative thoughts. They're going to have limiting beliefs. And trust me, I know this because most of the people I surrounded myself with my entire life 
thought like me. We had limiting beliefs. We thought investing in real estate was never possible. Investing in winter was a very stupid idea. I got that so many times when I bought my first property. What the hell are you doing, Austin? Why are you investing four hours away? It's going to go terribly wrong. 130K house. There's a reason why it's 130K. It's a piece of crap. You're going to get terrible tenants. No one's going to pay rent. I got all of that in the beginning. Had I listened to these people, I would not be where I'm at today. So surround yourself with people who have what you want and what you want to achieve, because these are the people's opinions that matter the most. They can actually give you real true advice. They have done it themselves. They can motivate you along the journey, inspire you and encourage you to take action. Shifting my mindset and shifting the people that I surrounded myself with was the biggest motivator and drive of success to me. I know I'm going on a tangent, but last thing to wrap this question off is that you're the product of the five people you surround yourself with the most. If five of your best friends, all they do is drink and club every weekend. Nothing wrong with that. I've done my fair share of drinking and clubbing back in the day, but if all they do is drink and club every single weekend, what are you going to do? You're going to drink and club. No questions asked. If you're surrounding yourself with five multimillionaires and you're the only person with a 10 K net worth, I guarantee you, you're going to be a multimillionaire in a couple of years because your five people you're surrounding yourself with are multimillionaires. It's all dependent on who you surround yourself with. And that directly translates to the mindset and breaking out of limiting beliefs. So please, I encourage everyone to network with people who have what they want to achieve, to spend their own money on self-development, to break through the limiting beliefs. Because if you do not do those three things, I will 99% sure you guys are not going to have success. And it's as simple as that, right? But most people will still opt out not to do that because they're going to find excuses for themselves. So if you do those things and they're easy things to do, you're going to find success 100%. It's just a matter of time. Well, you've convinced me I'm going to go and buy a property in Windsor tomorrow. <laughs> <We're> very well <laughs> said. You uh, you're definitely giving Tony Robbins a run for his money with this motivational talking. <laughs> Great. Well, Austin, it's been wonderful having you on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you'd like to share with the listeners? A couple of quick things is you guys can follow me on Instagram if you want to follow my real estate journey at AustinYay6. And also I have a community, like a real estate meetup in Toronto that I was mentioning. Everything is virtual now because of course with the pandemic going on, but we have 2.1K members in our Facebook community. It's called Rise Network, R-I-S-C network, rise network. And there's people always engaging, asking questions, helping each other, sharing their wins and losses in real estate. So feel free to join that if you guys are interested in breaking in the real estate industry. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host, I'm also an independent mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. Email me at Sean, that's S-E-A-N, at burnyourmortgage.ca or call or text me at 647-867-3711 for a free mortgage consultation. Also, be sure to head on over to www.burnyourmortgage.ca and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you with all your mortgage needs. Once again, thanks for listening. 
You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning. <laughs>